1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: In times of heightened national security, scholars and activists from the communities under suspicion often attempt to alert the public to the more complex stories behind the headlines. But when they raise questions about the government, military, and police policy, these individuals are routinely shut down and accused of being terrorist sympathizers or apologists. In such environments, there is an immense pressure to condemn What Society at Large Fears. I Refuse to Condemn, Resisting Racism in Times of National Security explains how the expectation to condemn has emerged, tracking it against the normalization of racism, and explores how writers manage to subvert expectations as part of their commitment to anti-racism. In my conversation with the collection's editor, Asim Qureshi, we discuss the culture of condemnation and the presumption of guilt, its psychological and physiological impacts, issues of trauma, white supremacy and racism as a system of power, structural racism's relationship to national security, prevent and countering violence extremism programs, cultural representation, the role of artists and performers, the afterlife of one's work or art, and advocacy to dismantle anti-Muslim racism. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now here's my conversation with Asim Qureshi about I Refuse to Condemn, Resisting Racism in Times of National Security, published with Manchester University Press. Welcome, Asim. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Christian, for having me. It's It's a real pleasure.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to, to hear about this book, I Refuse to Condemn. Um, we have a tradition here on New Books and Islamic Studies to always uh, ask a little bit about our uh, guests first. So um, could you tell us a little bit about your your background, uh, kind of how you have got interested in, uh, you know, Islamic studies broadly conceived of? Um, you, you have a kind of uh, atypical uh, profile compared to many of our guests, so can you tell us kind of like what your roles are and a little bit about your 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 past research and writing.
1: Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you know to to begin with, um, you know, I'm I'm a a Muslim myself. Um, you know, my family have you know pretty much always um, since I was very young been kind of practicing Muslims here in the UK. Um, my father and mother in particular would always encourage us to go to lots of different Islamic classes and circles that they would take us to themselves. You know, we had a whole group of friends that we grew up with who kind of all discovered like religion pretty much around the same time as one another. And so, you know, there was always this element of of learning about Islam from a very young age that, you know, especially my older brothers and I were, were constantly engaged in. So that process of learning, you know, I think has been um, quite consistent, you know, albeit there might have been years here or there that were, uh, it was a bit more sporadic. But um, yeah, in, in South London, we were very blessed to have a, a number of different people who, you know, were, were like elders to us. You know, one of the most famous being uh, Barbara Ahmed, who would later faced extradition to the US on material support for terrorism charges. Um, somebody who was like an older brother to many of us who we all looked up to and still look up to to this day. Um, And yeah, I guess, um, you know, somebody who who went into law uh, for my undergrad, because it's an undergrad here in the UK, and then having that intersect with the start of the war on terror, it really made me, I guess, question a lot about what I wanted to do with my life. So even though the subject that I was best at was corporate law. And I I thought I had my life staked out in terms of going in that direction. Really seeing the the images of men being sent to Guantanamo Bay, these, these Muslim men in these orange jumpsuits with these black hoods over their head, it really um, encouraged me not to pursue a corporate law line. So I really changed all of my subjects to... Um, international human rights law, to Islamic law, to trying to understand um, why it was that this world had changed so significantly in the way that it had, in the way in which I could see that Muslims would be increasingly uh, placed on suspicion and criminalized. It was also during that year in my masters that that Barbara Ahmed was re-arrested after initial arrest by the UK authorities, he was released, but then was placed on this US extradition warrant. And I guess having somebody that I looked up to being being placed uh, under a piece of legislation that I saw as being contrary to the rule of law really then um, convinced me that I want to spend my life trying to um, defend the rights of Muslims. Um, you know, kind of having this concern and this worry about what 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 lay in future for Muslims who were trying to to practice their Islam and having that conflated with um being potential threats to uh, societies around the world and that's i guess really my my entry point to really my activist life as well as my constant kind of desire to learn more about my own religion and to defend it ultimately
0: and uh can you tell us a little bit about your first book that that kind of deals with many of these topics, uh, but also I think leads into this project in in very concrete ways.
1: Yeah, sure. So the the first book, um, I guess, is probably out of all of the books that I've written is probably the most academic. It was a much more um, concerted effort to look at the contours of the global war on terror. And this was up until like 2008. You know, I represented you know, hundreds and hundreds of individuals all over the world been involved in their cases, try to understand exactly how they had um, come to be um, abused by by various authorities. So whether it was Somalis who were living in the northeast corner of Kenya, or it was Bosniak Muslims um, who were being unlawfully detained or um, individuals who were made to to go missing in Pakistan by the Pakistani security agencies, there were the war on terror is manifesting itself in so many different ways. And so what I wanted to do was to bring these cases together to show that the war on terror in the way that it's practiced in its policy making, it's almost like this malignant virus that it, it just kind of reaches out and it affects different jurisdictions in different ways. But often with the same effect, that you know, the way that the violence is felt by those who are receiving it uh, is very, very similar, that there is no process, there is no rights, that really one of the endemic features of the global war on terror is that it allowed for systems to construct themselves um, outside of what we would traditionally refer to as, as the rule of law. And I felt that kind of, that rule of law that, that we were talking about within our organization, it was known at that time as Cage Prisoners, now it's known as Cage, was really kind of like a transcendental notion of, of justice. It, it was one that we felt you could find within different traditions around the world, that the, the rule of law that we were calling for was not one that was linked to a specific constitution or even a non-constitution, as it is in the UK, uh, a common law system, but really one that that is moral and ethical in its centre, you know. And I think a lot uh, about the the statement of Ibn Taymiyyah where he talks about um, the just uh, the just state that a, um, a a a a state that is ruled. By a non-Muslim governance that is just is preferable in the sight of Allah to one, to a Muslim state that is run with injustice. And I think that's really um, guided so much of our mission over the years that we felt that there was this, this notion of justice that we should be um, seeking to, to aim towards. And you know, I talk about some of those concepts within that first book. It was called Rules of the Game, uh, Detention, Deportation, Disappearance. And those were the kind of like the key features of the global war on terror's architecture in terms of its detention practices.
0: Now, um, this book, uh, is an edited volume, but very much, uh, rooted in, in your own experience. And I'm, I'm hoping if uh, you can, I know you, you mentioned in the, the book that it is, uh, difficult because of the kind of trauma that it induces, uh, to to even kind of recall these events, but uh, if it's not too much to ask, I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about um, kind of the the events where this project began to uh, kind of arise, at least for 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 you.
1: Yeah, no, thank you, and I appreciate you you highlighting the um, the aspect of trauma. You know, what's you know before I I talk about that, one one of the interesting responses that I've had from so many young Muslims across the world who have read the book. Is, is that same one, which is they felt a, a sense of catharsis reading this book because they felt that so many of the traumas that they had experienced, whether it was in the workplace, whether it was in in university or wherever it was that they were located and they had, they had these similar experiences, they felt that they had been seen and heard uh, in a way that they hadn't up until this point. So that was, that was very, very moving for me. Um, and, you know, even in terms of, you know, as you mentioned, my own trauma, you know, this book was a massive catharsis for me. In fact, to the extent that, you know, a lot of what I talk about in terms of the physiological manifestations of, of trauma that I exhibit, um, many of them have now reduced to the extent that they're almost non-existent by virtue of having, you know, written or co- just edited this book. And, and I think that, that tells you a little bit, I think about the power of, of, making your your story heard being able to write these types of books that they can actually have that effect on you but you know really it was rooted first and foremost primarily in this in these moments where I'm doing these interviews over a number of years but almost every single time without fail it's a, a white male news anchor who will ask me whether or not um, I condemn terrorism, I condemn ISIS, I condemn al-Qaeda, and there was always this expectation that I should do so. And pretty much without fail, on every single occasion, I, I refused to engage uh, in this process. Most of the time, um, I kind of was able to to kind of deal with it because i assumed that there was a certain degree of hostility that would be coming from the anchor but the the incident that i i start this particular book with is is from an interview with um one of the uk's most celebrated journalists uh, a man named john snow who is somebody that i think many of us within the Muslim community really appreciated and admired. You know, we, you know, we, we felt and we, we still do, and I, even I still do feel that, you know, his uh, moral integrity as a journalist was really second to none. But here he was in an interview that he's conducting with me, still asking me that question. And I think it just, it, it landed as a blow much harder than any other interview that I'd ever done because this was the last person that I expected to hear this question, you know, come from because, you know, because we've always seen him as such a fair, fair fair-minded individual. It's like, Oh, well, you know, in, in, in the way that I had kind of mapped out the UK, the UK media, Jon Snow didn't exist in this, in, in, in a space of Islamophobia and racism, like we had placed him outside of any kind of Venn diagram where, uh, where we might locate other journalists and other news outlets and other organizations. You know, he was almost kind of immune uh, in our eyes to that accusation. And, you know, perhaps he still is. But in this moment, uh, perhaps of weakness on his part, he was willing to regurgitate um, that question, and, you know, like I think most of us speak about um, in the collection, these questions are not without consequence. Like, when you ask that question, when you ask that question, whether or not I condemn um, ISIS or uh, Jihadi John or any of these, these groups of people, what he's really asking is, well, as a Muslim... I'm not so sure about you. I can't be 100% certain that you don't support these people. And therefore, I need to ask you this question to be certain of that fact. And this is where I think the central, you know, kind of problem lies in the question itself, that it presupposes a lack of humanity, it presupposes a dangerousness that has to then be extinguished by the use of 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 a specific formulation of words and those that formulation is i condemn i condemn unequivocally and once you say those words out loud then you are permitted to be included within the kind of you know fraternity of humanity again and and that's why um you know those of us who wrote chapters in this book we really felt that the question itself comes from a, a particularly racist place.
0: Now, um, as you mentioned, the, con- the contributors are uh, all in you know, very interesting ways coming from, from lots of different perspectives as well, which is great, uh, both in terms of like gender, in terms of uh, um, geographical location, there's people from Australia, the US, the UK, Um, And then also kind of a combination of, of activists and scholars and artists. And of course uh, those, those identities can all be wrapped up in one as well. Um, Can can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how first, like when you said we should all do this together and, and then uh, also like, how did you come to bring these specific people into into this conversation into this project
1: yeah thanks um, I think you know if I remember correctly going back now, it's been a while um, and you know somehow the, the pandemic has had this kind of like um, effect on on my brain where I yeah. um, I, can't, I can't I can't make sequence of events as clearly as I used to be able to and so I, I I can't even remember if if I started this pre-pandemic or not. And I think it was. I think you know we started the project pre-pandemic, and it really just came out of um, having seen it kind of evoked too many times. Like I had, you know, I was seeing other people on on Twitter, on on Facebook, on on different social media platforms being subject to the same question, and every single single time I saw it, it happen it kind of brought me back to my own experiences. And, you know I, I, you know, I was just saying to myself that there are all sorts of contours to the way that this question is asked that I'm not really, you know, entirely familiar with or they exist in different spaces. And I want to get a better understanding of that. And so really it just started from me calling up um, activist and academic friends of mine Asking them uh, what their experiences of this formulation of do you condemn were. You know, I spoke to people like Adam Elliott Cooper and Remy Joseph Salisbury, who, you know, who aren't Muslim. Um, they're the, um, the two non Muslims who contribute uh, to this collection. And they were talking about their experiences doing anti racism work, you know, and, and Adam's case. Um, he's he's very much involved in in the music scene, and he was explaining how uh, to me how you know, especially with with music like grime and drill, which is you know considered by the UK authorities as being like a a vector for for violent behavior, that these types of you know music are then pathologized in order to show, that there is you know some kind of dangerousness among certain communities and you know as somebody who consumed you know a great deal of hip-hop in 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 the 90s especially um you know i was familiar with many of these arguments you know we had seen them with nwa with um you know specifically with uh tupac in a in a case that was brought by the wife of the police officer against him and time warner saying that his music had resulted in the killing of her police officer husband, and you know, and how these arguments were effectively weaponized by different um, kind of agencies across the world to say that, well, you know, what you, you know, what you produce, the culture that you have, is indicative of the kind of violence that exists in society, rather than saying that the culture that is created is a byproduct of the violence that people see. And encounter in their daily lives that it is it is a reflection of the structural violences that they see um, in the everyday and I think that's that's so key to so much of what we were trying to do with this collection that we had all of these activists and these scholars who were operating in in, in different spaces you know when I was speaking to them were like well you know the questions really interesting because you know when I'm working with my white colleagues, or the question is really interesting because when I was a student in school, this is what happened to me. And so what I really want to do is kind of get these um, contributors to help provide a sense of how multi-layered this question actually is, that it doesn't just occur when there is a a white news anchor asking somebody this question explicitly in an interview, that the question could happen you know, standing um, in the street talking to your, your friend's mother from 20, 30 years, you know, and she'll just blurt out a, a ridiculous question like that, even though they might know everything about you, even though they might have lived alongside you, even if they might have had food at your table, that somehow this question still exists in the back of their minds. And that's the worrying thing. And that's why when you know people like say the Warsi, Baroness say the Warsi here in the UK talk about Islamophobia having passed the dinner table test, well then I think that the condemnation question is really the, the ultimate manifestation of that test. because if in, in your mind you are thinking to yourself about somebody, especially about somebody you have known for many, many, many years you know, does this person condemn ISIS? Does this person condemn Al-Qaeda? Then, then the problem is with, within you, with the, within the person that's asking the question, right? It means that you haven't truly ever accepted that friend, that colleague, that neighbor into your schema of what a human being looks like. And that's why for me, the condemnation question is the most dangerous question that can be asked because it's indicative of the frailties of our wider society. It's indicative of the, um, uh, the constant Muslim question that there is about whether or not we can ever truly exist alongside the rest of these societies in the West. And of course, this, this collection is focused on, on the Western world, on the experiences that we have in the UK, US and Australia.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, this idea of trauma again, uh, that that shows up in different ways throughout the book. Um, And in the sense of uh, the contributors and yourself, I'm sure you can speak to this from your own experience by itself, but um, many of the contributors as well, uh, there's an intersection between uh, the research or advocacy that they do, Uh, and trauma, in the sense that uh, you you have a great line of introduction that says, uh, as those fighting racism, we are simultaneously subject to its logic. So uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, what what is this intersection of kind of studying the effects of uh, anti-Muslim racism, or trying to to fight against it through advocacy work? Uh, How does that um kind of uh get processed through uh personal subjectivity i mean i mean what what are the kind of impacts of doing this kind of research or advocacy and and how might we account for this kind of uh almost this double trauma that's happening i guess does that question make sense
1: yeah it does absolutely and it's so interesting you asked that because i was literally reading um trauma testimony of of one of our clients in cage um Mm. just today um and you know he says that when you recount trauma it is the the second round of violence that Mm. you experience because the first one is is when you initially experience it so you know a a torture survivor when they when they experience the torture of course they experience the uh, the violence very viscerally but you know, when when we when we talk about our traumas, we re-experience them as if they're happening to us. And you know, when I, when I do a little bit of trauma training, you know, um, I, I I try to explain to people how this ha- happens. And this is something that I think maybe men understand a little bit more uh, clearly or quickly. Uh, for example, if you if as a man you're watching some kind of slapstick comedy, and somebody um, gets a ball hit or something hit into their private area. Every single man who's watching that moment, who has experienced something like that in their past, their instinct is to f- for their pelvis to move backwards and for their hands to come close to their private area in a protective stance. It's instinctive, like you can't help but do it. Now, all that is, is that your mind is registering by watching this you know moment happen on, on television, that this is something that happened to me before and it was deeply traumatic. And you even sometimes people will will say like, oh, right? Almost like it's happening to you, but clearly it's not. It's happening to somebody else. It's not even happening in real time. It's happening on screen, but the body protects itself and the body experiences the memory of what it felt like the first time it happened or however many times it happened. And so we have to understand that trauma is as much as anything else, a physiological response. It's something that's encoded in our bodies. It's not just simply something that is um, kind of mental anguish. It's much more than that. It hurts. And so, you know, when when these scholars and these activists are, are telling their stories, when they're talking about um, the different ways that they've experienced um, these difficulties, what they're sharing is actually something far more pronounced, something more profound than simply, we wanna, we wanna tell you about how difficult all this is. And, and that, that, all of that sharing comes out of an intense place of, of love and care and concern for our communities. And that's why this book was never written as a, um, well, let's explain to um, you know those who don't understand how you can understand this better. This was ultimately, first and foremost, written in, and I think you can see that in the way that the essays have been written, as a form of catharsis for our community, as a form of of healing as a way for people to understand that they're not alone, but also that there are people who have been willing to challenge their their individual traumas through fighting back in different ways. And I I really do think that comes across very clear in the the collection, this element of resistance, this element of, well, we're not simply going to take things lying down, that we are going to try and, uh, as best as we can, own our own narratives a little bit, um, and, and it's hard because, you know, as, as, as Loki describes in, in his chapter, uh, the rapper Loki, about being stopped at a, a, a border crossing and being asked all manner of questions about your political and religious views that have nothing to do whatsoever with the legislation and why the legislation allows you to be stopped, right? that you are actually powerless in so many of these moments. I've been stopped at the border myself, like Loki, many, many, many times. And it's it's so interesting because the legislation, what it allows for you to be stopped under is for the police to make an assessment about whether or not you have been involved in the instigation, preparation um, uh, of an act of terrorism. Right? Now... What does that actually mean when they're asking you whether or not you pray five times a day? It means within the the way that they've constructed the world that any kind of metric that relates to you being a Muslim is somehow linked to terrorism. And because you have no rights in that moment, because you have no ability to, to challenge anything, because it's a terrorist offense to even refuse to answer a question. Like if they ask me, do you pray five times a day? And I say, I refuse to answer that question. Or, you know, this is a ridiculous question. I won't answer it. They can actually prosecute me for having committed an act of terrorism under the legislation. So there's a lot of powerlessness in these moments. And that has an effect. And by writing about it, by making it vocal, you know, it takes a great deal of strength uh, to do so. And you know that's why I think that you know all of the the, the writers and scholars who contribute to the collection are, are so utterly brave in in the way that they do it because they they open themselves up to a great deal of vulnerability. But what they what they're doing at the same time is that they're saying, okay, we're sharing our trauma explicitly with the intention that those of you who are experiencing this in your everyday lives that you can. You can acknowledge that you are recognized, that you have an experience that others have had, but also that we're fighting back against this, that we're resisting against this in in every single way that we possibly can. And that's why the element of resistance throughout and the different ways that each scholar, and it was one of the things that I emphasized to all the scholars as well, that don't just focus on the trauma, show our communities the various pathways that you use in order to to reclaim um, whatever moments you can.
0: Another uh, through line for the book is uh, the role uh, of white supremacy in structuring society, um, uh, and, and maybe more broadly, uh, you know how racism works as a system of power as opposed to kind of individual uh, encounters, something like this. Um, can you talk a little bit about how white supremacy serves as a as a framework for um, contemporary nation states that, that that you're talking about in these uh, in these examples, and then uh, how that kind of racialization of Muslims uh, plays out in those contexts?
1: Yeah, and I I think that's a, such an important question, and so many of the scholars throughout the, the text refer to white supremacy. Um, Aziza Johnson, uh, you know, uh, Allah yarhamuhu, uh, can sure you know, kind of, uh, make she rest in peace. Inshallah, she just passed away recently, unfortunately uh, for all of us. Um, she talks about what you know, she talked about white innocence within her chapter. So there are different contours even to the way in which it's expressed. That there are kind of active ways, um, as Nadia Ali in her essay points out. And then there is more. There is more kind of like latent ways in which this white supremacy is expressed but ultimately I think what all of the contributors acknowledge is that white supremacy is always reduced to individual actors or individual groups and that it has no systemic role and what's what's so interesting about that is that Muslims in Islam are often conflated into these large groups where they are uh, kind of all, Within this, um, within the same stratosphere, so that you can, you can draw a straight line from kind of maybe ex-Ikhwan types like Rashid al-Ghanoushi all the way through to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, that there are these kind of vectors of connection, which means that, you know, there's always a sense of threat no matter where you exist. Um, in this matrix of threat for, for those who seek to securitize Muslims. And that is the, the the dominant frame about Muslims. But what's interesting is that when scholarship looks at white supremacy, the vast majority of scholarship, and especially when kind of securitocrats and politicians look at white supremacy, they're always very, very eager to reduce it down to its most simple atom that they possibly can, that this individual did something uh, because they had mental health. And that's like the common um, you know trope within media reporting around white nationalist violence. Oh, this person was upset because of what was going on in their domestic life, or they were upset because of what was going on for X, Y, or Z reason, or they had mental health issues. That it's always reduced outside of the structural spaces. But of course, I would argue that the exact opposite is true, that the ubiquity of narrative of white supremacy is hegemonic. It starts from the political class and the media class. It pervades almost every single institution of state, including policing, including the courts, um, including our university institutions, that everywhere you go within the system, you find this and you, you'll see that that thread running through this collection. Whereas actually with Muslims, what you find is institutionally, you have almost a complete hegemony in terms of a narrative that goes against, um, you know, acts of political violence. So for example, in the UK, you couldn't point to a masjid and say that that is a masjid that's promoting terrorism. That's a masjid that's promoting, you know, kind of like dissociating yourself entirely from uh, from the UK, it's it's so interesting that, you know, that we don't have a specific platform that you could really identify outside of a group like al mahajirun whose numbers are, are infinitesimal. You know, we're talking about maximum 50 people in the UK out of a uh, maybe a three and a half million population of Muslims now in the UK. So the numbers we're talking about are very, 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 very small. Whereas when we're talking about a system of white supremacy, we're talking about an entire edifice that, you know, has so many layers to it that even people who consider themselves very, very liberal can hold views that are entirely racist and, you know, extremely problematic. But they're never problematized because it's seen as being part of normal uh, conversation. So, for example. Um, the kind of strong anti-immigrant feelings that people have in the UK are never presented as xenophobic. They're never presented as racist because the underlying assumption is that you can't be racist if you hold these views because they're so normal within society. And that's part of the problem that we have. And I really think that, you know, so many of the scholars make that um, that very, very clear. You know, and as and, and Sadia Habib uh, writes in her, um, in her chapter the racialized go-to Muslim, you know, she starts it as a letter to her dear white liberal friends. Okay, so there's, there's an acknowledgement that, you know, these people are my friends. There are also these white liberals at the same time who are making demands of their relationship with Sadia that are, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, they go against the spirit of what a friendship should be. And I think that's, that's really worrying for, for a lot of people who don't necessarily have a, an understanding of what's going on in these moments, the power that ex- is exerted in these moments, you know, especially if you're working alongside people who uh, are more senior than you, who are expressing uh, their own contempt, their own anxieties about Muslims and Islam uh, in certain ways but then you're still beholden to them because ultimately they can decide upon, on, uh, upon your future. And that power relationship is so central um, to so much of, of the experience of, that Muslims and people of color experience every single day that oftentimes we end up being forced to be complicit in our own traumas because you know even the people who ostensibly should be speaking up for us are also complicit in the narrative of, of hurting and harming us on a daily basis
0: um, one, uh, one phrase that I, I really like from the book that you you talk about is uh, what you call public safety racism, mm-hmm. and I think this gets at uh, this idea kind of gets at uh, how structural racism uh, is legitimized as necessary for national security. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit about how this perspective plays out and uh, perhaps what the parameters um, or consequences of a kind of good a citizen, bad citizen dichotomy, um, and especially how it, how it affects Muslims?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I, that was a phrase I think that Adam Elliott Cooper uses in his essay, which I then up on. Um, you know, this idea that somehow we're keeping society safe. By introducing exceptional and harsh measures, in order to police ideas, beliefs, and behaviours of specific communities in particular, and I and I and I'm so fascinated by this because the chapters were written, you know, all pre-COVID, but then COVID comes along, and it's like the whole public safety discussion flipped 180 degrees. So. Prior to COVID, you know, liberals would say something like, you know, uh, we have to respect freedoms, but ultimately we have to put public safety first. And so, you know, if we institute measures like control orders or we institute measures like CVE or prevent um, in order um, to curtail certain freedoms that we have, then it's a price that we all have to pay. But ultimately, that that price is never paid by white liberals. It's always paid by people of color. And in the context of the global war on terror by Muslims in particular, we're the ones who, you know, when we get locked up for, you know, 14 days for a month, have our lives completely wrecked, even though we're found to be completely innocent. You know, when, you know, our children are taken out of their classrooms by counterterrorism police and questioned about their views on on the politics of the Middle East, right? Right. They say, well, nothing went further. They weren't referred any further. They weren't put through any kind of de-radicalization program, but they don't understand the violence of that moment and how the relationship of that child to the state has fundamentally shifted forever. You know, I remember one of our cases in Cage, you know, a a young boy who had a problem with his leg that went to the doctor and the doctor started asking questions about ISIS without any... Reason whatsoever to ask him, except for the fact that he was mustered. And that boy turning around and saying, You know, I would, I'm never going to go to the doctors again because I don't ever want to be subject to something like that, to that form of interrogation in my life again. And so the whole of society is recruited into this exercise of public safety. And what's so fascinating that COVID comes around. And the entire debate switches the other way. So when those of us who are campaigning for rights turn around and say, okay, there is an actual existential crisis here because that's the argument that was used against Muslims, right? That we were living in a times of existential crisis. We need security measures in order to make sure that we're safe. Now we're seeing people die in their hundreds, in their thousands, in their 10,000s from a, uh, from a pandemic that has devastated the entire world, and so when so many of us are saying, you know, we really need to ha- kind of curtail our freedoms for a certain period of time in order to make sure that people are safe, that our parents are safe, that the elderly are safe, that wider society is safe, our governments turn around and say. You know, we're, we're a nation that values its freedom. We're a nation that won't simply just accept having these types of containments in our lives because we want to get on with the, with the process of living. We want the process of freedom. We want to feel freedom. Like, you know, we, we value our freedoms. So when there's an actual existential crisis in front of you where we can actually see people dying on a daily basis and those rates and those numbers are increasing, then freedom takes on this very, very specific meaning. And that for me, you know, I think highlighted how, you know, kind of white liberal society, how it places its own hierarchy of, um, of importance on freedom, that while they knew in the heart of hearts that the curtailments and their freedoms that they were asking for would never really impact them, would never really affect them because they knew that those measures were only really being brought in for Muslims or for people of colour, they were fine with it. You know, even if they knew in their heart of hearts that there wasn't really an existential crisis. But the moment this actual dying was taking place, then the narrative shifted. And they're like, no, 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 you can't curtail our freedoms in any way. Because if you do, then that changes our, our entire way of life entirely. And so I think that the hypocrisy of that moment is so um, stark, and it just really, I think, summarizes the you know the problem of the societies that we live in and the type of ethno-nationalistic moment that we're currently in. One that I I I am concerned that it's going to be very difficult for us to uh turn back the tide on
0: yeah um one section of the book uh and we, we kind of talked about this you've mentioned a few of the the artists um throughout the conversation but um you have a bunch of contributions from from artists and performers um most of them i mean I, all of them are already uh, somewhat outspoken um but uh I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about what kind of perspective. Uh, they add to the the volume and and kind of what uh, what voice did they bring um, that maybe some of the other contributors couldn't.
1: You know, um, for me, the um, that final section um, of of the book was one of the most powerful uh, in the collection as as a grouping and and the reason for that is within the the contemporary debates and discussions around representation politics we're always given this this view that you know simply by people of color or muslims being represented that in itself is an ultimate goal that in itself is an ethic by which you know we should mark whether or not there is progress so right now you have this kind of like extremely dire narrative in the UK around the conservative party leadership contest where you have a number of people of color who put their names into the hat. I mean, a number of them have already pulled out Nadim Zahawi, Priti Patel, um, have, uh, and you know, have already kind of fallen by the wayside in relation to uh, the leadership contest. But you know, the forerunner at the moment is Rishi Sunak, And the whole idea that, well, you know, this is such a wonderful moment that we could have somebody who's a brown man in the highest office in this country. And when you're fighting racism and you're fighting systems and structures of structural inequality, of structural violence, and that's not just from kind of racist policies, it's also from um, kind of the way that neoliberalism has embedded itself into almost every single aspect of society. then to have a group of, of, you know, kind of celebrities, and even if they're not kind of like the most renowned celebrities in the world, you know, but people who are looked up to, especially within the Muslim community, to have them write about how they have a set of ethics in the way that they produce and they perform that are central to, to who they are in their art form. I think it helps to shift that entire discussion around representation politics. It helps us to see that actually the ethics of what you're promoting is more important than the the tick box of diversity. But these guys go further. What they're talking about isn't just having ethics. They're also talking about resistance. They're also talking about willing to never be popular, willing never to become mainstream for the sake of holding true and firm to a central set of ethical guidelines in their lives, right? And, you know, for the most part, that is um, dictated to them by by their faith in God, but also by what they see as their own political vision for a more just future. And I think that's so deeply profound um, to have in a collection like this that young people would come, they could read this collection, they could see, you know, people that I consider to be all uh, stars in their own right. And to learn from them, you know, when they say that, you know, it's not about just being there, it's not just about being present, it's not just about accepting every single invitation that comes your way. It's about using that platform that you've been given in order to, to shift the debate and discussion forward in a meaningful way in order to use that platform to bring about some form of change and you know it's no it's no uh, secret that i'm not a fan of of representation politics i've written about it a number of times uh, over the course of you know the last decade um you know i i do take umbrage with people who uh, believe that just having people of color in positions of of structural violence will somehow improve a situation i take the opposite view that actually having people of color in those positions can reinforce the structures of violence so yeah for me it was it was uh, it was extremely moving to have such brilliant voices contribute uh, to this collection because I think they really help us to see how there are ways of existing and being and still maintaining a sense of public celebrity without having to to fall into the trap of becoming co-opted by the systems of violence that were forced to exist in. Um,
0: Another kind of interesting issue uh, came up in in Loki's chapter, but uh, it's also something that I think you could probably relate to in the sense of um, uh, thinking about, audience and then kind of the afterlife of either the art in Loki's case, or perhaps past comments, past statements in your case, uh, in the sense of, you know, this kind of uh, what happens after uh, the art is out there, the comments are out there, right, and how those can be deployed in uh, ways that might be counter to the intentions of the the author so to speak um i don't know if this is getting too abstract but it, no no I, can, I can I you maybe you talk mean. a little bit about uh you know can we can we account for that and uh or, or what can we do if if people use our work in ways that perhaps um are c- contrary to uh, our our objectives
1: right oh, wow i mean that's uh <laughs> That's a really great question, uh, Christian, uh, and I appreciate you asking it. And I think it's really difficult to answer because I think, you know, I know for myself and I don't want to speak about Loki key how to turn, um, but I know that so many of my statements have been, you know, taken out of context and, and weaponized, not just against me, but against my colleagues at CAGE uh, quite regularly and consistently. You know it's so interesting that you know those statements are jumped on, but nothing that I actually write in detail in in my books is ever engaged with, right? And so we know that this is a a, a, a constant and consistent tactic by by our detractors. Um, but all I can say really to that is that this is this is the environment that we're operating in, and that's part of the, the purpose of this book is to acknowledge that. We we operate in an environment that is fundamentally unfair, that is fundamentally unjust, that is fundamentally racist and violent, and that we cannot control anything other than, you know, the way that we first and foremost relate to our own communities. That's why this book was never written with the emphasis of trying to convince others of an argument. You know, it wasn't... You know, I, I, you know I, I said to all of the authors, scrap the objective tone, scrap the need to write, to convince, right? Just write for the sake that, you know, for, for the sake of that young person, that young, you know, black or brown person who is reading this book and is, is struggling with their lives so that they can see themselves written into pages in a way that feels emancipatory to them. So that's the first thing, to write ourselves outside of the violence itself to, and to speak about ourselves outside of the violence, to, to, to see one another and to be able to communicate with our communities in a way that is effective and that gives them strength and power outside of thinking that the only way that you can be safe is in the eyes of the police is in the eyes of the courts or in the eyes of politicians. That to be, to be um, condemned by a man like Boris Johnson could actually be something that could be seen as praiseworthy within the eyes of the community. And so that's what, that's what ultimately we have to be in the business of. We have to be in the business of changing the way that we see honour Uh, honouring ourselves, honouring those within our communities away from where power resides. That's really difficult work because ultimately, you know, power is power and it projects the idea of its own fairness. It projects the idea that it is the ultimate moral arbiter for what a safe and just society might look like. But what we're trying to do and we're trying to help our communities understand That there are other ways of being, other ways of being ethical, other ways of being rooted to your communities and be helpful to your communities and to raise your communities that exist outside of the way that you are constructed by the state. So even if the state is is trying to harm you, that you can still get by, you know. Look at an organization like CAGE, for instance, that regularly has its bank accounts closed, that regularly gets vilified by the media. And yet 100% of our funding of our entire office, and we now have, I think 15 paid members of staff, comes from the community and the community alone. We don't get grant funding, we don't get government funding. And I think that within that is that praxis of resistance that this is not just an academic exercise. This is an exercise in showing that there are alternative ways of of being relevant, of contributing to the debate that does not involve having to sign up to Keir Starmer's Labour Party as some kind of resistance against the Tories. Like, you know, I don't want to be a red Tory in my resistance. I don't think that Keir Starmer gaining power is somehow going to end uh, the violence of neoliberalism, the violence of austerity. I don't think it's going to end the violence of the global war on terror or the violence of a racist police force. In fact, I think what it's going to do is going to just perpetuate um, the violence of those institutions because it will be seen as if, well, the Tories lost. And this was the the trick that New Labour pulled. Um, They convinced the world that somehow there would be some meaningful change. And you know, I think many of us believe that with the, uh, with the Human Rights Act um, uh, coming through uh, at the start of Blair's administration. But then you have to really look at everything that took place after that, which was a systematic dismantling of the rule of law and a, an impunity that was built in for all of our racist institutions. And Blair started that process. Now, we should never forget that, that it was a new, within the UK context, that it was a labor government that really started the process of ruining our institutions so that they became constantly and complicitly uh, uh, involved in a system of structural violence. And so, you know, the moment that maybe we could have had some kind of meaningful change through perhaps a Jeremy Corbyn government, albeit, you know, um, I had my own reservations from certain perspectives, you know, that that is passed. And so now we have to think of an alternative politics, you know, outside of uh, a reform through labor, you know, what might that look like? And that's difficult to know, but I think it starts from, from our communities feeling a sense of strength about themselves first and foremost that they don't have to be beholden to power for any kind of meaningful change.
0: Well, there's so many things we could dive into throughout the book. Um, I, I do want to give you the opportunity uh, before we start wrapping things up, if there's any other uh, kind of final thoughts uh, you want to offer about the the book itself. Anything, maybe perhaps I didn't ask that you'd like to uh, listeners to know about. I mean, I
1: think, you know, what, why I want your listeners to know about this book is that, you know, the the chapters, you know, forget about my introduction. The chapters are short, okay. You could happily script my introduction without any issue and go and dive straight into any chapter that that suited you, and you would get a a flavour for what this book is about in in a very very personal way. And that is the beauty of the book, that you know these scholars and these activists are are really helping. To highlight how this system works and operates in very personal ways, but ones that reflect the system and the structure as a whole. And I think that's where some of the uniqueness of the book is, especially because it's, it's framed through this lens of this question of condemnation. And of course, for those, you know, who who are at the kind of the, the white liberal end of the spectrum, you know, I, I guess I'd I'd ask them to read this book and consider if they've ever, you know, asked themselves whether or not X, Y, or Z, you know, person of colour or Muslim in their lives condemns black gangs or condemns Muslims in any way. And, you know, if they have had that thought, then they should ask themselves why they've had that thought. What is it about that friend or that colleague that elicited that response from them? And I think if 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 our colleagues and our friends that they honestly ask themselves this question with like as much sincerity as they possibly can, mm-hmm. then I think it could it can really move things in a, po- a very very positive direction. I think it could really help you know us move past this this kind of. Um, you know, politics of, um, of representation, of people being involved in the academy, people being involved in your institution just because of the color of their skin. You know, what your relationship to them actually looks like in a practical, real and lived way, not just about the fact that you hired uh, somebody who was a different skin color or a different religion. And I think that's why, I, I guess, one of the things I really hope for from this book that people will, will read themselves in the chapters, whether or not they're coming from a similar experience, or if they're the ones who have perpetrated that type of experience in the life of somebody else over whom they hold some degree of power or privilege. So yeah, I mean, thank you for, for giving me the time to talk about the book.
0: Yeah, I hope, uh, I hope people will, will pick it up as well. Um, but before I let you go, um, if listeners are sticking around this long, uh, I know they would love to hear um, where they can read more of your work. And I know you're very busy with uh, your kind of legal and advocacy work and behind the scenes work with Cage, uh, but I know you're also writing other things. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on that, that people might be able to get their hands on down the road?
1: yeah sure. um so I, I just um published a paper arguing against um the use of the word Islamism for omatics colloquium. so I hope that people read that and engage with it. There's already been a lot of really interesting discussion that that that's come out of that paper, and I think that we're we're going to be having that conversation for a long time, but you know outside of that, you know this year I've started working on. A a book with uh, a colleague on looking at the ways in which Muslim political prisoners, both in Egypt and in U.S. custody, the way that they practice Islam in very very difficult circumstances. So I'm looking forward to to sharing that research as we develop it over the course of this year. So yeah, hopefully uh, it will be you know wonderful always to to get. Um, you know, the views of others over, you know, anything that I've, that I've written, um, you know, any of the previous books, especially this book as the most recent one. Um, and yeah, to see if we can find ways of, of really shifting the debate in, in ways that are important and meaningful for us all.
0: Great. Well, good luck, Awesome. That sounds like a, a great project. I, I wish you the best of luck and thanks for uh, making the time to talk about this book.
1: Thank you so much, Christian.
0: Really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Awesome Kureshi about I Refuse to Condemn, Resisting Racism in Times of National Security, published with Manchester University Press in 2021. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Islamic Studies.